Welcome to Testing Code, a podcast about software development, software testing, and Python. In this episode, I talk with Andy Hunt. Andy Hunt and Dave Thomas wrote the seminal software development book, The Pragmatic Programmer. They were original authors of the Agile Manifesto and started a publishing company. Andy discusses their book, their publishing company, the future of Agile development, and even sci-fi novels. I think it's a fun episode and you'll get a lot out of it. Thank you to PyCharm for sponsoring this episode. Just the other day, PyCharm saved me tons of time with its super powerful debugger. I had some fixtures to set up my system under test into a certain state, and a test that depended on that state. But after the test was done, the state was wrong. I really didn't know which command was causing the problem, and I was on a tight deadline. A few clicks in the gutter placed breakpoints at the beginning of each fixture and at the test. Now I ran the test under debug and watched the system state change as I continued through the breakpoints. As soon as I saw the state change, I knew which fixture was causing the problem. And I did it all again, this time stepping through each line of the problem fixture. Bam, found the problematic command. Once I saw it, it was obvious how to fix it. But within five minutes, I was on to the next part of my day. And one more thing I want to bring up. The PyCharm team knows that we all hate it when our code runs slower in a debugger than out of the debugger. So they squeezed every optimization they could into making the debugger blazing fast. And that's awesome. Try it out yourself by going to testandcode.com slash PyCharm. That link will give you four months to try out PyCharm Pro. Today on Test and Code, I am supremely honored to have Andy Hunt on the show. If there's an off chance that somebody might not know who you are, could you introduce yourself? Uh, sure, Brian. Well, let's see. Um, I wrote a little book once with Dave Thomas called The Pragmatic Programmer that, that a lot of people like. Uh, I was We were two of the 17 people who wrote the Agile Manifesto uh, back in the day. Uh, we run the Pragmatic Bookshelf Publishing Company, um, which has gotten some award-winning and best-selling books for developers uh, and their managers. And, you know, mostly I try to, uh, you know, keep busy and see what things I can screw up and get in the middle of and, and play with and that sort of thing. Causing trouble, mostly. <laughs> That's awesome. I actually lo- love that sort of an attitude. The Pragmatic Programmers was extremely important in my career. I read it early 2000s at a time where I was a little getting a little frustrated with my, my work at the time. And uh, just a lot of the tips inside there uh, gave me um, inspiration to change, change, uh, change my environment, change my processes to, uh, to make it work. And I, um, I referred to it at the time as a guerrilla process improvement because I, I just did it. Uh, I, I w- instead of asking for permission, I uh, asked for forgiveness. Yeah. And, and that was that was really sort of the point at the time, um, because, you know, I've, I've told the story, I think, just about every interview. But, you know, Dave and I started off, we didn't intend to write a book at all. Um, we were just writing like a little white paper for our clients at the time, um, because we kept seeing these sorts of same issues and same problems, you know, time and time again. So we figured, all right, well, we just give, you know, a client a little head start before we got there with a, just a little list of tips and think about these things, try to do these things, um, you know, that sort of business. And right, unlike any software project ever, the, you know, the project grew in scope beyond a little white paper uh, to a full-on book. But it was – I think it's been so well-received 
and continues to be so well received because this was real. You know, this this was our experiences in the trenches with real users, real clients, you know, our hands dirty in the code. Um, you know, a lot of stuff that gets written about processes and um, philosophies of programming, you know, at best it worked for somebody once in one company. Maybe. One of the things I loved about it was um, a couple of things. One is, uh, well, one, I, I reread it, I, don't know, I think last year, um, and it's held up fairly well against the, you know, against time. Uh, it still is pretty relevant. There's not a lot of language specific stuff in there or anything. It's it's pretty it's it's both amazing and and I suppose reasonable that it hasn't changed much. I mean, if you go back and read it, yeah, I mean, a lot of the tech references are pretty outdated. Um, you know, uh, showing it to a to you know, one of my kids, it's like you have to explain what Corba was. Uh, <laughs> you know, oh, yeah. this guy, yeah. you know, that hot language Eiffel that no one's ever heard of, or, or Tom. You know, the, these things that were like sort of leading edge cool at the time, and now you know, dustbin of history sort of thing. Um, but if you take away the uh, you know that sort of uh, of cruft, you know, it's, it's kind of like going back and reading Mythical Man Month. And he's talking about, you know, mainframes and operating systems that no one's had their hands on for decades, but all the issues are exactly the same as they are today. You know, you could replace, you know, OS 360 with the latest, uh, you know, Mac OS or Linux or, or Windows, you know, pick some contemporary tech and the rest of the book works complete. It's exactly the same because people haven't changed. We're the same you know, for better or worse, uh, we haven't changed over 20, 30, 40, 50 years. Um, just the tech has. And even then, not as much as, as you might imagine. <laughs> uh, the other thing, I, I already mentioned this before, but the the fact that, I mean, a lot of the other uh, process improvement books, things like writing about XP even and Scrum and others, they, they involved having you to get the entire team to buy into it. And that's one of the things like the pragmatic is great is you don't need team buy-in to improve your individual process. So, yeah. Yeah. And there's, you know, it's an interesting thing because if you wait for the entire team to do something, or you wait for the organization to buy in to do something, you may be waiting a very long time. Uh, and there's an awful lot you can do on a personal level to make things better. And, you know, I like the idea that you can do that and sort of lead by example because other people will see that you're not suffering. You're not spending hours in the debugger or you're not getting paged at midnight. Paged. Ha, listen to me. You know, you're not getting that, you know, slack or text, uh, you know, in the middle of the night kind of deal. Um, and then they'll be like, dude, you know, what's your secret? What, what, what do you got? And then you can start sharing that. Um, but and as much as I appreciate that and I'm glad we're able to step into that niche it also occurs to me that you can only go sort of so far with that kind of a model. Uh, and I think this is where a lot of, you know, current um, organizations might be falling down on their uh, agile adoptions or their, their process adoptions. There are some things that if you want the full benefit, you've got to get the whole organization to buy in. And that's where we run into trouble because you might have – a very nice set of very agile, very responsive teams, but they're butting heads with traditional accounting methods, a tra traditional scheduling, traditional, you know, budgeting, you know, whatever. The sort of the, the rest of the infrastructure of the organization is not agile in the least. 
and that causes a lot of friction and a lot of, of difficulties. So there is a certain point where if you want to get you know, beyond and, and get to a, a, a higher state, you do have to drag in the rest of the org. Yeah. So, but that, what agile means really is kind of different to a lot of people now. <laughs> oh, I will take that one further. I think it means, it means anything you want it to mean uh, <laughs> at this, at this stage of the game. I mean, it's, you know, I've been quoted from saying this before, but it, it, it galls me. It frustrates me beyond belief to find out that, a large number of people, I, I, I won't say a majority, I'm hoping it's not the majority, but a very large percent of people, to them, Agile is, well, we have a stand-up meeting and we use Jira. <laughs> well, yeah. You know, okay. Agile is a Jira ticket. It's like, oh my goodness, no, no, not that. Um, there was just, just on Twitter the other day, somebody uh, posted a picture of the um, safe process model oh my god it's this uh, right it's right it looks like <laughs> i don't know it's a cross between monopoly and Candyland. it's it's this big you know board with all these little blocks and arrows and stuff on it and way over at the right there's this tiny little dot labeled the customer <laughs> some people are kind of forgetting that one of the i think the one of the names thrown around before agile came along was uh lightweight methods that was yeah so what happened there um, the, the folks who booked the facility for us, which was, was some combination of, of Alistair Coburn and Bob Martin and, and, you know, those folks, you know, we booked this room in the hotel for, for the 17 of us, a conference room and stuff. And they needed to know what name do you want on this conference? Cause it was, you know, we're basically handling it like a, like a miniature conference. Um, and so, you know, that, and, you know, some of the wikis and materials at the time, yeah, we called it lightweight methods because, the idea was we wanted to just get at producing stuff, at writing code, at shipping code, at, pr at producing value, and not getting all hung up on all the bureaucracy and all the paperwork. Um, but and that was a, a big discussion at the uh, at the Snowbird meeting when, when the manifesto was created. Was well, what do we call this? Um, and lightweight was reasonable, but folks clearly thought, well, the problem with that is that has the vision that you could get your clock cleaned by a heavyweight. You know, they would just come in and, and, and deck you and, you know, floor you kind of thing. So that really wasn't quite the right tone we wanted to set. So we considered words like adaptive, responsive. Um, and I think, you know, in hindsight, I think we might have been better off if we'd gone with something like adaptive um, or, or, you know, some word that meant um, something closer to that because, you know, again, just seeing how people sort of um, misunderstand and misapply what agility was trying to get at uh, is really very frustrating. And, and they, you know, typically really miss out on the whole adaptation part of it. Um, and this is, you know, this is one of those things that's been a frustration really my my whole career because it used to be you had the same sort of um, superstition in the waterfall days that, well, all we have to do is follow this process and everything will turn out okay. And I distinctly remember one of the first um, captive jobs uh, that I had before I became a consultant. They demanded detailed design documents in pseudocode for everything that you wrote. That they filed away on the vax, and no one ever looked at. But you know, you had to you had to sort of go through the motions. Um, and it's that same 
sort of slavish devotion to a process, it's really, it's a superstition. You know, it's a cargo culty kind of superstition thinking, well, we'll just do this and everything will be okay. And no, it won't. You actually have to think, you actually have to try stuff. You have to experiment, you have to get data, you have to, you know, try things and accept that, okay, well, that didn't work out. Well, let's try it this other way and see if that works out. Um, You know, it's a very organic process. And all these folks who think, well, we just follow the process, it'll be fine. No, it doesn't It doesn't work whether it's safe, whether it's scrum, whether it's waterfall, whether it's rup. You cannot just follow the process and expect that to save you. It has never worked that way. It will never work that way. That's yeah. just not how the game's played. Yeah, my experience with that was, the, was a project where we had tons of meetings and reams and reams of documentation uh, documenting all of the class hierarchies in UML and all of the interaction bounce diagrams before any code was written. And it was, and it was a nightmare. Uh, as soon as we started writing the code, all of the documentation that we spent months writing just was irrelevant any, again at that point. So, yeah, yeah, absolutely. And that's sadly, I mean, that's a very common experience um, because what that does is that that exposes the actual dynamic of writing software, that it is very fluid. Everything you do sort of impacts everything else. It's, you know, chaotic in that sense. And um, in, the, in the chaos theory sense, not the running around screaming, although that does happen, right? <laughs> uh, and But, you know, the, the uh, folks who don't have experience, so the rest of the organization, the managers, the stakeholders, the users, you know, they assume it's a, it's a very linear process. Uh, and what's funny is, you know, a lot of times you'll see people saying, oh, you know, software construction should be like building construction. That's a totally linear process, right? You get the architect and they draw the plans and then the builders just build it and you move in and it's straight line linear you know, no mistakes, none of the stuff we put up with. Yeah, it doesn't work there either. Uh, we, the house we're in now, we, we, this house was built, um, you know, when we moved in, we, you know, it was being built and watching the construction process, watching the errors, the omissions, the rework, the difficulties. Yeah, actually, I guess we are kind of a lot like building construction because it's pretty messed up too. You know, they put the staircase in backwards. Uh, at one point, um, you know, so th- this idea, this kind of like ideal engineering fantasy doesn't even exist in the real world. Um, but from the outside, that's how you kind of think it works and you'd like for it to work that way. But, you know, as anyone can tell you, you know, the real world is a lot messier than that. Well, so is, uh, is grows your answer to a lot of this? That's that's the intent. So the whole the, the story behind the, the grows method ideas, um, I'd actually had the notion for this back around probably 2006 or so. Um, I was starting to do the research for the pragmatic thinking and learning book, and I was giving talks uh, and lectures on that. And that, that published in 2008, if I remember right. So for that sort of two, three-year period while I was really working on that um, material of neuroscience and cognition and learning and and how the brain works, these kinds of things, I'm looking at this thinking, wow, we've we've really missed the boat on a lot of this um, process discussion and a lot of of methodology 
by not taking into account the limitations and the, the functioning of the human mind. You know, we sort of assume people are like code or people are robots. We say do this and they go do that. Well, they don't. You know, they never have. Um, we don't we don't work like that. We've got significant cognitive biases. We've got significant processing errors. And none of our um, none of our approaches really take that into account. They don't take into account our limitations. So I had the idea back then, like, wow, you know, it really would be powerful to develop a methodology that, you know, for instance, had learning as a first class part of the method, because that's something we have to do all the time, right? We have to learn the domain. We have to learn the new tech. Um, you know, it's Tuesday. There's been 37 new JavaScript frameworks just came out today, um, <laughs> right? You know, I mean, there's always new stuff to, uh, to have to learn, but you're also learning from the evolving system itself, uh, what it's characteristics are what it's what you know emergent properties are coming from the system so we're learning from everyone all the time but we're not really taught to do that or we're skilled to do that and that's not part of the any of the methods they just assume that that's something that's going to happen on its own magically um and it's not that's you know if you don't schedule it it's not going to happen um so yeah. one of the so what I wanted to do with grows was sort of meld a couple of big ideas. Um, the notion from the Dreyfus model that you can't treat beginners and experts the same way because they approach a problem with very different mindsets, different problem solving uh, models, different skills. You know, you have to really handhold uh, a beginner and give them step by step instructions. And you can't do that with an expert or you will bring their performance down to the level of a beginner. And they actually have done studies on this, which, which is really kind of interesting. You know, this isn't just this isn't just hand waving. Right. You know, people have actually studied this um, and it's a it's a it's a fascinating area. But you've got to treat beginners differently. You have to uh, be mindful of the problems in human cognition and the need that we have to continually be learning, continually sort of, you know, be aware and revisit what we're doing. And all these things have to be sort of baked in and part of the method. So that's what I'd started doing with the, uh, with the grows material was, you know, and I, I think even now it's, it's really, it's baby steps. Um, you know, this is the very embryonic, um, uh, kind of notion, but they're also very powerful base ideas that you have to experiment. You know, an experiment is a first class part of the method. You know, you try something, see how it works, get the feedback. Um, you know, it all really a lot of it comes back to getting and applying feedback. And this is where things like waterfall, the superstitious devotion to a process. The reason they fall down is they don't want to change because of the feedback they get. And that actually is the entire game right there. If you want to summarize Agile, if you want to summarize, you know, modern successful uh, development, if you want to summarize a uh, successful Darwinistic <laughs> experiment, right, you get feedback, you adapt, and then you move forward. And you can continuously do this in everything. Um, and that's really the secret. Yeah, the adapt part is where it gets missed a lot. I think uh, we're adding feedback a lot, but not doing anything with it. Yeah. Um, the now the so I've tried to jump in, not 
sort of half-heartedly into some of the the grows um, documentation and stuff. Um, is there a good place to start to learn if I wanted to add some of this stuff to my team? Is there where would I start with that? Um, so we have the website growsmethod.com, and there's uh, some a couple nice articles and some essays, um, a few older videos then sort of explaining the framework and the basis uh, of our thinking. And then there's a set of practices that are just online for you to look at and try. And what I wanted to do there, you know, a lot of things will say, uh, for instance, do pair programming or do TDD or, you know, pick, pick some practice and they'll say, go do this. But they don't really give you the guidelines on how do I know if I'm doing it right? How do I know? What are the warning signs if I'm doing it wrong? You know, how do I know, right? So on a very simple level, take something like a a version control, right? That's like the level zero easiest, you know, you have to do this safety and hygiene level kind of practice. You have to have version control. How do you know if you're doing it right? Blow your disk away and bring everything back and build a project from version control. I mean, it's an easy test, you know, you know, delete everything, get it all back using nothing but your version control client. If that works, Hey, you're doing it right. Okay. Now you move on and do the next thing. But so you extend that kind of thinking. So it's like a little pattern language for each uh, practice that follows that kind of idea. It's like, here's what you should be doing. Here's how you can, you can tell if you're doing it well, here are the warning signs to watch out for. Um, here's ways to do it really badly that will kill you. And the funny thing was in an early version of the website, uh, we called that something like spectacularly stupid ideas. And some guy was going through and you know reading material and he wrote, he said, I love y'all's material. I want to try these things. This is great. But I can't show this to my management because everything you have under spectacularly stupid ideas is basically their business plan. Trackpad batteries low. Basically, their business plan. So we 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 renamed that a little bit, but you know, you find these incredible uh, examples of taking an idea and and just mangling it. Uh, again, version control being the simple example. I've had people tell me they use Outlook for version control. How? They email each other all the source code at the end of the day, so there's a copy on the server. Oh, geez. Okay. It's interesting to to pick apart some of these. For instance, uh, version control, I'm uh, totally on board. But one of the things that I've always struggled with is uh, the concept of pair programming and why. I've never seen a study to show that two people doing some doing one job can do can work faster than two people doing two jobs. So that's I'm, that's an interesting topic. Um, I know back in the day, Lori Williams uh, at NC State had done some studies uh, on pair programming, and the early studies showed productivity gains and improvement, fewer bugs, that sort of thing. Um, I haven't looked lately. I don't know if they've uh, done any more recent studies or expanded that. And now you've got mob programming, which takes that to sort of the next level. Um, it's an interesting question. So on the one hand, there are definitely there are definitely some advantages to having pair programming. Uh, and one of them I kind of touch on in the Pragmatic Thinking and Learning book. When you're sitting there typing and you're concentrating on symbols, you know, the ASCII symbols, the alphabet, the curly braces, the parens, that kind of stuff, that mode of thinking kind of locks out the higher order creative um, processes in your brain, if you will. So if one guy is the navigator typing 
And then the other person is not typing and is able to sort of look out the window, pace, walk around the room. The, the one not uh, typing is able to better be creative and inventive and see, hey, this thing we're talking about, isn't this the exact same as that other code over there? Are we duplicating that? Do we really understand this requirement? Is this the right thing to do? You know, your brain is sort of freed up a little to better process the higher order concepts. And you lose that when you're stuck, you know, sort of typing and doing symbol manipulation. And one of the examples that, that I, I tell people is, you know, you've had this happen to you, right? You're sitting there, you're struggling with a bug, you're start, struggling with a, a design issue, something, and you're typing away and it's, and it's not happening. You're not fixing it. You're not seeing the problem. So what do you do? You get up, you walk away, you're halfway down the hall, you're halfway out to your car, whatever, and bang, it pops into your head, yeah. right? Here's, here's the answer. It's because you're away from the keyboard. You know, the best thing to do when you're stuck on a problem is step away from the keyboard. So, and there's, and there's, you know, there's reasons, there's, there's physiological reasons for that. But in terms of pair programming, there's a, there's advantage right there that you've got one person locked in that sort of detail mode to make sure your parens are balanced and your semicolons are there and, and that sort of thing. And then the other person is not burdened with that, that sort of cognitive load while you're doing it. So from that point of view, two heads are better than one. Um, in terms of like peer pressure, you know, you're much less likely to use a variable called Squidward uh, if you're pair programming, because then the other person's going to make fun of you. Uh, whereas if you're just doing it alone, all kinds of things can can just creep in there. You know, oh, foo. Well, I'll just name it something better later. And later never comes. Yeah. Right. Of course. So you've got a certain amount of not falling into bad habits because it's pretty much instantaneous code review. If you do something really snarky or, or silly uh, or just plain wrong, you know, oh, no, you shouldn't put a try catch there. You know, the standard in this project is to blah, blah, whatever else. Um, so that helps. I mean, I think it's helpful just because the scope, there's so much you have to sort of keep in short term memory to be successful. Um, the more eyes you have on it, the more hands you have on it, probably the better. And that's why I think for some hard problems for some cases, mob programming is a natural extension of that. You've got 12 people and one person's typing and driving and everyone else is looking at the screen and, and commenting and kibitzing on it. Um, I definitely think there are some cases where that's a, a viable way to go and a better way to brainstorm and get through the problem. Um, but the thing is, all these techniques are context sensitive. Yeah. There are there are some things where that would be a terrible approach and you really want to be, you know, I want to be heads down on my laptop, headphones on, no distractions. I need to concentrate on this thing. Uh, and then there's other times where, no, I'd like to talk to 10 people about this because this is really weird. And, and, you know, there's things to to discuss and get your head around. So that's part of what makes practices a hard way to go is they're not always the best uh, choice at the time. It's everything's very context dependent. I mean, some stuff, you know, you get to the lower level things like like a version control or a build system. That's pretty non-controversial. You need it. You need it all the time. Just do it. Yeah. You know, don't complain about it. Um, but then you get to things like like a TDD or or pair programming or other kinds of testing, um, other styles of development, and what it depends. 
you know, it, it kind of depends. So wh- when I asked the uh, Twitterverse about what they thought of pair programming, the answer wasn't that it's productivity gains, but it's learning gains. You can spread out the knowledge uh, amongst the team better when you're sitting like two at a time or three at a time. Definitely. And I think that's a great reason to, to add it. I, I'm going to try to add that to our team now uh, in small doses. But I also want, you know, I also want to honor there's it's not just how people learn in beginners and advanced, but it's also introverts and extroverts and different personality types and um, flex hours. I mean, if everybody's working different hours in different locations, how do you pair program? Uh, that those sorts of things are a little difficult. Sure, and that, that gets back. That gets back to the context. Um, you know, if, if you really want to do some technique, but it's not going to work in your environment, don't beat your head against it. You know, find do something else. Do something different. Um, if no one's around for that kind of knowledge sharing for pair programming, have a lunch and learn. Um, yeah. You know, have people brown bag a lunch and, and say, hey, here's this cool new thing I discovered and and chat about it over lunch. I mean, there's other ways to, you know, uh, to, to get that kind of result. And that's that's where you have to be a little bit creative. It's like, OK, well, we can't do X, Y, Z for whatever reason. Well, what can we do to get these results? You know, we want we want this. We want that. We want the other thing. And that gets back to the grows idea of, OK, well, let's let's experiment. Let's try it. You know, let's try doing this for a while. Hey, that's working great. Or mm, that's not working so swell. But if we changed it like this, maybe that would work better. Um, you know, folks forget. But the very first line of the manifesto says something to the akin that we're you know, we are uncovering. We're discovering new ways of better ways of building software. It doesn't say we have reached the mountaintop and we have found it and you peons kneel before us and do this. No, it doesn't say that. It has never said that. It says we are uncovering ways of doing this by doing it and fiddling with it and experimenting. And that's, to me, that's one of the biggest things that's been lost. People don't want to experiment and find a better way to do it. They want to pay their kajillion dollars for their certifications or their, you know, uh, their model or whatever and say, okay, we're done. We're going to do this now. Well, maybe. Speaking of experiments, was the pragmatic publishing company kind of an experiment? Um, I think it still is. Uh, yeah, I think it started that way and, and it still is. Um, it's kind of funny again, you know, when Dave and I founded the bookshelf, that really wasn't our intent. Um, what we actually wanted to do, the, the, the MVP, the first product we really wanted to put out was a like a developer starter kit. So hey, we got this team together. We're, we're starting out Greenfield. What do we do? And the idea was we would ship you a box with a pile of books and like some, you know, some office toys, some Nerf guns, some rubber ducks. <laughs> oh, awesome. You know. That kind of thing. And we, we had lined up a, a manufacturer of, of, of rubber ducks that would drop ship and we had in boxes and you know, we had all the infrastructure worked out. But what we didn't have was enough was enough writing, enough books of the basics you know, beyond the pragmatic programmer. We needed stuff at least on how to use a specific version control system, how to do unit testing, how to do automation. Right. So we decided, well, let's write a couple of those books ourselves first. And so Dave and I wrote the first two books on version control and unit testing and then had our friend uh, Mike Clark write the third book on automation. Then we had like at least the three books that were the the um, pillars, the foundation, if you will. 
Um, and then people, by then people are like, Hey, can, can we write a book for you? And it's like, I suppose. Okay. <laughs> uh, and now we've published, I got to look at the stats. It's like, I don't know, 400, 450 books. It's, 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 it's been a, a, a large number of titles over 16 years. We were founded in 2003. So it's been what, 16 years. Um, that's been a bunch of books and yeah, it was sort of accidental. And the funny thing is we built the business like you would a software project. There's a continuous build machine. Everything's in version control. Everything's in plain text. Um, you know, all the sort of, of precepts that we live by, uh, we did because we didn't know any better. I mean, how else would you do it, right? Um, and come to talk to other publishers, find out, oh, they do it very differently. And, you know, publishing as an industry kind of has the overall idea that, well, it was good enough for Gutenberg, damn it, and we'll still do it the same way. Um, so they were kind of very resistant to change and, and resistant to technology. And here we come waltzing in with, you know, continuous builds and version control. And, uh, you know, so we're actually able to do, uh, an awful lot with a fraction of the staff of other publishers, um, because so much is automated and so much doesn't, doesn't require handholding. So, so an example, um, we were just talking to a, a another large, huge publisher, and their standard mode of operation is you go home and write in Word, and when you're done, you send them the Word file, and then they send it somewhere to have it rekeyed or imported into a design program, like, like InDesign or something like that, and then they typeset the book, lay out the book uh, from there. So there's this you know, transcription and error and effort and we do everything all in the same source files. So you're authoring it. The development editor is actually working with you as you go along, helping you out. Um, the copy editors index, they all work in line. It's all the same files. It's all in version control. You know, nothing gets lost. You can go to the build machine and see when was this author last working on this project? How much progress have they made? You know, all these kinds of, of stats sort of come for free and other publishers don't have any of that information. They, they have no access to that. Um, the, you know, authors lose manuscripts regularly because Word wasn't built for large-scale projects. So we've we've heard from people who had three, four hundred-page books that got corrupted, um, oh, in Word, and they then couldn't get it back. And it's like, wow. So yeah, we have none of those issues. Well, if they used version control, they could go back. That's a big if. <laughs> Uh, I really, one of the things I really enjoyed, so um, I really enjoyed writing the PyTest book with uh, with Pragmatic, and I really liked having the source code be, the source code that shows up in the book starts out as source code, and um, the, the, the actual code that ends up in the book, I can run the, I can run tests across it, I can make sure it works as I expected, I can make sure the output still works, and so, uh, for instance, we did a second printing of it, and I went through with a new Python version, a new PyTest version, and made sure it all still works like it did before and fix the things that didn't. So that was awesome. But and that's a huge advantage that, you know, other, pu you can't do that with other publishers. Um, the, the, when we first wrote pragmatic programmer, there were, Oh, I don't know, 12, eight, 10, 12, 15 different languages in it. You know, there was Eiffel C, C plus plus, um, Java, uh, all kinds of, of, of different languages for examples in the book. And we made sure each one of them compiled and ran 
out on disk, and then it got you know sucked into the uh, into the text, and um, that was that was wild at the time. You know, we we talked to the to the publisher. It was Addison Wesley published the book, and they were like, no, no, no. Usually, you just you write it in Word. You know, you write the code in Word, and we'll <laughs> we'll have someone retype it and you know rekey it, and and it's like, no, that's that's, that's ridiculous. Really bad idea. Um, <laughs> you also treat authors a little different. I don't know what other publishing houses do. <laughs> we do <laughs> the profit share at their very least with the authors is um i think completely fair and you're not secretive about it you got it up on your website you know when we started off these were our friends writing the books and really still is you know the, the pragmatic author community we still consider y'all are our friends you know it's a small world we could not be one of these big publishers that churns and chews through and pisses off all of their authors because there's not that many of us. You know, it's a small world. And I was really surprised when we first started out, especially, and still to this day, we will get um, refugee authors from other publishing companies and they will tell us literally horror stories of what they went through with some of these other publishers, anywhere from benign neglect to outright fraud. Um, oh, yeah. Really horrible, horrible goings-ons. And, I mean, to me, that's just, it, it's, it's astonishing because for a publisher, the authors are the raw material. You know, th this, is, this is why you're in business. If you don't have good authors who want to write for you, why are you in the publishing business? <laughs> you know, um, I mean, it's kind of the whole point. So, yeah, we've always been very careful to be very transparent, very upfront. The contract um, gave our lawyer at the time, you know, an absolute heart attack because it's like this is written in plain English. You can't you can't do this. They'll <laughs> understand it. <laughs> yeah. I was like, well, yeah, that's kind of like. That's what you want, isn't it? <laughs> no. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, we had, to, we had to fight very hard to keep the contractual language very simple, very straightforward, you know, very clear. Uh, and I've read ones from, you know, other places that are, it might as well be in Sanskrit. I mean, you have no idea what, what, it's, what it's talking about. Well, one publisher that approached me um, included a clause in the contract that would make them own my website. Wow. And I'm like, I'm not giving you my website. No. Wow, that's harsh. <laughs> but anyway, you're working on Grows. Um, you're also a, a sci-fi author and a musician. Yeah. So you're doing a lot. How much time do you spend at Pragmatic? It really varies. Um, you know, I'd, I'd like to say, oh, well, you know, as, as, as the big boss, I, I do very little and, and, you know, everyone takes care of everything. And that's mostly true. And it's taken years to get to this point where all the routine stuff is handled by folks who know how to handle it and, and I don't have to do it. And that's wonderful. But there's a side effect to that. And this is the same whether it's, you know, you're talking about a project or running a company or whatever. You know, as soon as you solve that one, the biggest problem you have, as soon as you solve that, the second biggest problem is now your biggest problem. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, that just kind of keeps going. So, you know, by effectively, you know, automating or delegating all of the usual stuff that happens, what ends up floating up to me is the weird stuff, you know, the, the one-offs, the things that's like, wow, nobody knows what to do with this. And it goes to Andy. Uh, so I get a steady stream of kind of, you know, X-Files meets Twilight Zone of 
what? Really? That ha- okay? Well, let's see. Uh, you know, and uh, and having to go from there. So that you know that varies tremendously. Um, well, I I love to having you be involved. So even in stuff that I, one of the things that uh, authors get is insight as to what's going on with other authors because there's a the mailing list uh, that includes um, some other authors and somebody will say, hey, I got this question about the build system. How does this work? And it's cool when really even other authors can jump in and say, oh, this is how I fixed it. Um, but then, but not, and that's a very software, open source sort of software centric sort of thing. Uh, but then also you jump in sometimes and, uh, and help out, which is great. Yeah, um, definitely. And it's like I say, I mean, it's, it's, it's a small world. You know, we, we try to do what we can to keep the community talking and working together because, you know, we're, we're all in this together. Um, you know, so we try very much not to get that sort of, us and them mentality that a lot of companies get because there's, there's just us. Yeah. Yeah. When I was a kid, I read a lot. I was bored a lot. So I read a lot. And, uh, my, my, uh, litmus test for what book I could carry around with me was it had to fit in my back pocket (laughs) and I liked sci-fi stuff. So I usually wrote, I read a lot of smallish sci-fi books and you are now, I haven't uh, read any of the, is it Conglomora? Conglomore, yeah. How did do? Did you read a lot of sci-fi as a kid? Ah, uh, a bit. I was, I was thinking because you'd said that as a question, and I was, I was trying to think. Um, when I was younger, younger, I think I tended more toward the sci-fi fantasy side, so more Lord of the Rings, Dune, uh, Wizard of Earthsea, you know, that sort of stuff. Um, but with a little bit of like, you know, the moon is a harsh mistress, um, you know, you know, kind of more classic, uh, sci-fi things. Um, and then these days, you know, my, my, my favorite current author would be John Scalzi, uh, and the fellow who writes the Bobaverse books where you've got this AI named Bob, uh, who's, you know, reproducing out in the cosmos and taking over. And I, I like both of those. Uh, I like the Scalzi books and the Bob books because there's a, a real healthy degree of snark. Um, and sarcasm to them, which for some reason just resonates with me. Um, so I try to, uh, you know, that's, that comes out in my writing, um, and in my talking, I suppose. Um, so I put a lot of that into the, uh, into the Conglomora books. Um, so there's two of them, there's Conglomora and Conglomora found, and there's a third one to complete the trilogy that I haven't started yet. Um, cause I got distracted and I wanted to first write a book about a haunted house, and, but then I'm thinking, okay, what can I do to make that a little bit different or a little bit cooler? So it's set after the Second Civil War. <laughs> it's still in the future. It's still well. Hopefully, it's in the future. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, yeah. Might be. Might be next year. Uh, Let's hope that it's supposed to be the far future. But you know, we'll we'll see how that <laughs> see how that goes. Um, but now it's it's um it's a really interesting exercise, especially when you're used to writing. Um, nonfiction and trying to explain stuff to people, you really don't want to take that voice when writing fiction. So I really don't like the the, the sort of hard sci-fi where you get pages of extraneous detail that make no difference whatsoever. You know, oh, this is an XJ-37Y model starship that was built in the, and it goes on for a page and a half, and then you never, the ship flies by and you never see it again. And it's like, <laughs> Okay, what was what was the point except to, to fill pages? So, you know, I try to avoid that level of extraneous detail, but instead put in the detail that makes it feel like you're there. Okay. You know, one of the things I like about sci-fi is it's one thing to think of 
well, we've got this great new tech or there's this new ability or this you know new thing we made up for the book. Well, that's great. So you've got your transporter, your warp drive, your, your gene editing, you know, whatever you've got. But what would the consequences of that be? What would it be like to live in that world? What difference would that make to civilization, to your day-to-day interactions with people? Would that make a big difference? Would it not make a big difference? So kind of playing around with that is a, uh, is a really um, enjoyable exercise to sort of build out the world your characters are living in and extrapolate from, okay, if this, if we took this technology and really, you know, beat it into the ground for all it was worth, what would that do to us? Would that be good? Would that be bad? Um, you know, these sorts of questions. Well, and the, I, I don't know. I'm, I, uh, don't know if I just lived in a really boring town or, or what, but, uh, the, the part I loved about sci-fi was, um, like the first half of the book usually. So a book will usually do create a world or create some technology around it. And, and you're immersed in that. And then you learn the characters and you do a little bit of character development and then they'll have some sort of problem. And then they solve the problem. The, that, the big boss battle kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. That part of it, I never hardly ever cared about. It was just, just this escapism of, of, of imagining a different, a different reality than we have now. Absolutely. So one of the things that I that I wanted to do that I did in the in the Conglomora series, the scope widens continuously. So when it starts off the first couple chapters of the first book, it's almost claustrophobic. It's this this guy who's sort of a loner in this one section of, of a vast array of ships that are glued together. And it's it's really sort of tunnel vision. Um and, you know, things happen. This stranger from Earth shows up and all hell starts to break loose. But his world starts to, ex- you know, through his eyes, you see the world start to expand. Other concerns start coming in. And the, you know, the, the, the stage gets bigger and bigger about every half book or so. And, you know, suddenly it's starting to evolve a lot more than it involved uh, in the beginning. So the world in their stage keeps expanding um, as the books go on. And I think that's a nice... For me, that's a nice way to be like, okay, I get to invent more of that world now and, and you know, explore that with the characters. Okay, well, you've sold it. Um, I'm totally <laughs> – uh, as soon as my uh, my uh, Kindle reader comes back with my daughter on spring break, it actu- <laughs> it accidentally went off to college with her. Um, but uh, when it gets back, I'll uh, start reading that. Um, so you're – and then I was list- – while I was preparing all these notes, I was listening to some of your music – um, and, uh, so what instruments do you play? Um, I play synthesizers, keyboards, uh, trumpet, flugelhorn, a little bit of larger brass. Um, I'm trying to, to pick up the trombone, but it's kind of heavy, but, um, <laughs> you know, uh, so Wait, yeah, mostly, mostly brass and keyboards. A flugelhorn. I thought that was some sort of Danish. Yeah, <laughs> it sounds it right. Um, that if, if, uh, Folks of a certain age would remember Chuck Mangione um, in the 70s with uh, uh, played it. And uh, you see it in jazz bands uh, a fair bit. It's like a trumpet, but it's got a conical bore and it's got a larger bore. So you sort of play it like a trumpet, but it's got a much mellower, uh, rounder sound. Oh, nice. Yeah. Well, I really had fun talking with you today and uh, hope to talk with you more in the future. Oh, absolutely. Well, thanks so much for having me. All right. Well, thanks a lot. Have a good day. Thanks again to PyCharm for sponsoring the show. Get an extended four months to play with PyCharm Pro at testandcode.com slash PyCharm.
That offer is only good through the end of March, so take advantage of it ASAP. The PyCharm link is also in the show notes at testandcode.com slash 69, where you will also find links to everything Andy and I talked about. Thank you for listening, for spreading about the word about the show, and for continuing to support me through Patreon. Patreon supporters keep the lights on. That's all for now. Now go out and test something. <laughs> <laughs>